This is Stories of Wind, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi everyone, this is Rianne Campbell from Stories of Win, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Mary Kay Lobo. She is a professor in the Department of Neurobiology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, and her lab studies basal ganglia and reward circuitry that regulate motivation and repetitive behaviors. She's also my postdoc mentor, so I'm really excited to get to interview her today. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dr. Mary Kay Lobo. Thank you. I'm honored to be here and it's honored to be um, um, interviewed by one of my trainees. <laughs> um, cool. Well, I'm excited to hear, you know, your whole science journey. Um, I'd love to kind of start at the beginning. And we usually always ask, you know, what kind of made you first getting interested in neuroscience and research? Yeah. Um, so I think before neuro neuroscience, it was just general interest in biology. And when I think back to it, it was probably the influence of watching um, Nova on PBS, <laughs> um, watching especially the biology-related topics, um, especially those related to life and DNA. I was, I don't know, I was just always fascinated by DNA and molecules and how DNA codes for life. Um, you know, so I, that started like at the early age, I was actually looking at like the old Nova PBS and like, I think I was like seven or eight when some of these oh. first things were coming out. So, <laughs> so that was a long time ago. Um, but, um, meanwhile, I also just got really interested in, in behavior. Um, um, I think it just really fascinated me that, um, right, we all engage in behavior, but sometimes you have these disruptive behaviors that are, um, you know, that bring about these life challenges, especially with mental health. Um, so, so it was just always fascinated by behavior, um, and just behavior in general. I was actually an anthropology minor because, mm. um, I like primate behavior. Um, and then, um, I just kind of went the path of neuroscience. I didn't, you know, early on, I had no idea I can like merge just, you know, interested in molecular biology with the brain, but that's the path I took. And I'm happy to elaborate more how I got into neuroscience as an undergrad. Yeah, yeah. So, so you kind of said you started, you have minored in anthropology. So, yeah. did you then also do then a major in biology, or how did you kind of merge your yeah. interests to form yeah. your undergraduate education? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I I actually was a general biology major um, because I liked everything. Actually, for a little bit, for like a hot second, I was micro just because mm -hmm. I was interested. And I thought that might be the best fit for my interest in DNA. Um, but I ended up taking many classes, including neuroscience classes. I was also in a neuroscience lab. So that's kind of what forged my path, um, which led to forging my path in neuroscience. And that came about when I was in so I'll say I first started, when I first started college, I was actually at UC Santa Cruz. Um, mm. And I was actually studying geology because I, I really like gems and stones. I mean, I was still interested uh. in like DNA and behavior, but I like gems and stones. But I took a, you know, after taking one, like a class my first semester, I was like, this isn't for me. Um, mm. So then I, um, I actually didn't stay in Santa Cruz. I decided to come home. I think I just missed Southern California. And I actually went to a junior college for a bit. It was there where I was like, okay, I think biology is the right fit for me. But for a while I thought, well, I think I'm going to be a vet. I didn't really have much exposure mm -hmm. to, to research. Um, I think I'm going to be a vet. Um, um, and I'll, I'll also backtrack 
when I was in high school, I never thought I would be a scientist. I thought science mm-hmm. was really intimidating back then. I don't think I had the confidence to become a scientist. But as I did well in school and biology, I was like, okay, I could do something in this realm. Um, so when I was transferring to UCLA, I ended up being in a summer research program. And um, you write an essay about your interests. And mine was a lot about molecular genetics and DNA. And I wrote like one line, I'm interested in the brain. And Mm. this is a program where they just assign you to a lab and they happen to assign me to a neuroscience lab. And I was like, oh, wow, I could study study the brain. Um, I could study neuroscience. Um, In this lab, this is a basal ganglia lab. Um, Most of the people in the lab were doing electrophysiology, but I was doing histology, um, looking at... um, development of glutamate glutamate receptor expression, subunit expression throughout development. Um, So my beginnings in neuroscience were in histology, but I was still really interested in the molecular biology. Um, And I was able to pursue it a little bit in the lab I started in, but then I was able to pursue it more once once I started my PhD and my postdoc. Cool. So what lab did you join in your undergrad that kind of introduced you into neuroscience? Yeah. Yeah, so this lab was um, Dr. Mike Levine. He's at UCLA. He's um, a basal ganglia research. He was doing a lot of postnatal development in the basal ganglia then, uh, but then shifted more to some Huntington's disease, um, neurodegeneration work. Um, and it's funny, I, when I started, when I was applying for graduate school, I thought I wanted to stay in that realm, but I was, I was still interested in mental health. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and wasn't quite on the, you know, didn't quite get into addiction at that point, but I was interested in mental health and the time for graduate schools, I was, you know, thinking about mental health, but I just had been in a basic Anglia lab. I thought that was a good fit for me. And I actually stayed in that lab for a couple of years as a technician so I could learn more. And it's actually, that's actually where I started to do molecular biology because they were mainly electrophysiologists, but they were trying to do single cell RT-PCR on cells that they recorded from. So I actually got a chance to start working on that and finally learn molecular biology um, or get more exposure. And that's kind of like where where that, and, and that was really exciting for me, the molecular biology aspect. And I was able to start that in the realm of neuroscience then. Cool. So clearly it had a very big impact on you. And then did you kind of from there decide that you wanted to then do a PhD program at, you know, where you had done your undergrad, were there certain yeah. labs that then you saw that would be where you would go? Or how did you kind of make the decision of like where you pivoted for grad school? Yeah. So I applied all over. Um, I applied to multiple places throughout the U.S. At the end of the day, UCLA just seemed the best fit because they had a lot going on in the realm of neurogenetic. And I also just like that it was a very diverse environment. I was used to being in a diverse environment growing up in Los Angeles. So I like that the, you know, there was my my cohort of graduates, my students in my cohort were from diverse backgrounds. So I felt mm-hmm. comfortable in that environment. It's funny because the lab I joined for my PhD, William Yang, he wasn't even there yet. I didn't even know about him when I was interviewing. It wasn't until I started, he started the same year as me at UCLA that I got to know him. And he was like the perfect fit because he was studying the basal ganglia, but doing more molecular genetics mm-hmm. of the basal ganglia. So it just ended up being a really great fit um, to, to join his lab. What was it like joining a new lab where you're the, <laughs> the very first students? Yeah. And- yeah. 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 So that was definitely very intense. Um, <laughs> it was intense, but also exciting because William, um, for anyone that knows William, he's a very dynamic, very energetic individual. So 
he was just always enthusiastic and happy about science and had so many um, cool ideas and, you know, exciting directions. And, um, you know, I thought I was going to go to his lab to study Huntington's disease and study molecular mechanism of Huntington's disease. But he had this just basic project to profile um, gene expression of the main, two main neuron subtypes in the striatum. He had actually developed the back technology to make back transgenic mice when he was an MD PhD student at Heinz Lab, and with um, he they had developed this GenSat project gene expression nervous system atlas, and he actually brought um, to the lab when he started a bunch of these um, back transgenic mice that express GF, GFP um, specific neuron populations. So he put me on this project where we had these green fluorescent protein neuron labeling um, mice of these projection neurons in the striatum. And because I had done the single cell RTBCR, he's like, well, you'd be a good fit. You're, you know how to dissociate neurons. Um, go try to fax these neurons and do your gene expression on them. Do you, Back then we did microarrays. We didn't have of, um, RNA sequencing back then. And that, that was that was actually really scary because I was like, you're putting me, a beginning graduate student, <laughs> on this what is like pretty expensive project, like doing yeah. all the facts and doing the microarrays. And that was pretty daunting, but it was exciting. And William had more faith in me than I did at that point. <laughs> but but he knew I had the expertise and I could do it. And he realized I could do it before I, I realized I could do it. And, and it did work out. And it was it was an exciting project to be on. Yeah, that's cool. I guess what was kind of the process like of, um, you know, establishing this kind of like newer technique or like really and yeah. characterizing it? How was, you know... I picture there are a lot of trials and tribulations, I guess, in doing yeah. all of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because like the 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 actual like isolation of neurons worked pretty well in the beginning and like isolating these, you know, these these pure population neurons worked really well in the beginning. And even the getting like good quality RNA, I mean, what what I found is that there's a lot of variability, which you know you've done some of that work. <laughs> there's a lot of variability. Um, there were some times where, you know, you spend, I basically be doing one sample per day or one to two samples per day. Um, I'd spend a whole day, you know, from dissociating to bring it to the flow cytometry core, um, to bring it back to lab doing our extraction. And sometimes you just get good RNA and sometimes it just, it just didn't work. There was no yeah. RNA there. And it's just, there was no rhyme or reason. So I think that yeah. was a little bit frustrating, but we we're still able to get enough you know, enough good quality RNA to do the microarrays pretty early on. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny, like that, when I, when retrospect, like that process actually went pretty fast. It was more the downstream validation that was, was taking me a lot longer. Um, back then I was trying to do, we didn't have RNA scope back then. So I was trying to do um, a fluorescence in C2 hybridization and spend a year doing that. And it just didn't work with the tools mm -hmm. I was using and had to go back to the, like the radioactive and C2 mm -hmm. hybridization. Um, but the validation process seemed to be taking longer. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I feel like it's always, it can really be aspects that you would think it's like, oh, well, this aspect's going to happen so quickly yeah. and then it's going to be great. Yeah. Um, and you're, you can just get stuck at moments that you don't even realize yeah. are going to be the biggest hurdles mm -hmm. <laughs> from this project. I guess, what were some of kind of the main findings um, from these characterization of these um, uh, cell, yeah. Yeah. cell populations? Yeah, so, so basically we found new um, enriched genes in each population. Um, and what was really nice, you know, was, William was really good about following up the biology, and I worked on a couple of those 
genes while I was there. Um, one, I just was, we found a molecule that's involved in development of one of these neuron subtypes, and I followed that up. Um, there was another gene that actually wasn't on our microarray, because back then you're limited to what genes are on our microarray, but we realized from the Densat Atlas that this gene was highly enriched in one of the populations, and we had a knockout for that mouse, and I was able to collaborate with um, a behavioral neuroscientist, Bernard Brillain, um, who was able to do some behavior on that, so that kind of like started to you know get me into the realm of behavior, um, and then there was another mouse line that we had for one of the the knockouts that had this stereotypy behavior. I have a little bit of my PhD and the next person started to study that. But it was it was cool because there, you know, some of these genes William continued to study in his lab. And it's like this, you know, some of his research directions started from this, this, these genes that we found in my original study. So that's been pretty exciting. Yeah, it's definitely like I feel like, I mean, foundational work for the lab and yeah. also for the field and doing this kind of <laughs> characterization. It's really cool. You had always had the basal ganglia, I guess, in mind, but it really, I would think, made you more and more interested in these yeah. D1 and D2 populations, yeah. as I know it still continues today in your lab. But mm-hmm. how did you kind of um, think about taking those concepts and continuing on um, in your yeah. postdoc or deciding then, based off of this work, what you would do with your postdoc? I knew towards the end of grad school, I really wanted to get into the realm of, of, you know, behavior and behaviors related to motivation, whether it's, you know, stress, depression, and addiction. I was becoming more and more interested in addiction. I took a few addiction-related courses when I was a graduate student. Um, so then when I was looking for postdocs, I was really looking for labs that, I, but I also knew I wanted to continue to study molecular mechanisms. So I was looking for labs that could do that. And really, like, the best lab at that time doing that was Eric Nestor's lab. Um, and so I interviewed with him when he was in Texas. And I I had an amazing time in the interview. It was just a wonderful group of um, trainees in the lab. Everyone was really happy there. It was a large group, but everyone was really happy and motivated, excited about science. So it was just an easy decision to join his lab. Mm-hmm. When I went to his lab, I was wide open about what I would work on. I didn't, I wasn't married to like these striatal cells. I was okay. like, I'll work on whatever brain region you suggest. But he was just getting those tools, the same GFP mice that I had, and also some Cree lines. And because I had already worked on them, he basically gave me the pick of projects on them to begin with. My PhD research prepared me for what I started doing Eric's research. And it was just a natural progression to continue to work on those cells in during my, you know, once I started my lab. I will say like my PhD was more dorsal striatum. So I started to learn mm-hmm. more about the nucleus accumbens and ventral striatum in my postdoc. Yeah. Yeah. What were your kind of main findings from your postdoctoral work yeah. in Dr. Nestor's lab? <laughs> yeah. So that was that was quite funny. I joined um Eric Nestor's lab to try to do um, epigenetics and cell type specific epigenetic mechanisms, but I started to do optogenetics. That's about the time that Carl Dysroth started to um, generate all these tools in the field, and he was just coming out with these papers with the optogenetics. When I started Eric's lab, that term optogenetics didn't even exist. Um, <laughs> and he was actually, he was reaching out, I, um, he reached out to Eric, and we were also, it's funny because we were also just interested in making, Eric's lab has been a pioneer in just using viral vectors in the brain, but we didn't have any tools that, the viruses that were Korean-inducible, like the lab had mm. tried some and they didn't work out as well, but Carl had some. So 
I first just got connected with um, his grad student at the time, Fang Zong, who's like, you know, CRISPR expert. Um, <laughs> um, and he, I just got connected with him because we we're like, we need a creatable virus. Um, but then it progressed into, well, Mary Kay, why don't you go out and learn this optogenetic technique um, from Carl Dyson-Roth's lab? Um, and this was, you know, I know they had a training. They eventually had a training, like his lab was, had like a like a more structured training. But we were like part of the initial people. And I know there were other people that just went out kind of informally and got to be trained on how to do the optogenetics. So that was really exciting. I went with a, out a, with a colleague in the lab, Minghu Han, who's an electrophysiologist. We went out to learn it. Um, and then um, I started to like set that up in Eric's lab. Um, but at the same time, still working in molecular mechanisms, still working on, I was working on a model of a BDNF receptor knockout um, in these two populations, these D1, D2 expressing populations. Um, but also doing the optogenetics in those two populations. And basically what we found with optogenetics, you know, is classically it was thought that these striatal pathways, these direct indirect pathways act opposingly, but together to pr produce coordinated action. And if you have a disruption in these D1 expressing neurons, you might have overactivity at the level of like movement and motor. If you have a disruption in these D2 neurons, you might have a break on that, that activity, that movement. But no one really knew what's in the, again, that was just a, a hypothesized model. Um, it helped make sense of a lot of neurodegenerative disorders, but no one really talked about like well, what's going on in nucleus accumbens in terms of motivation. And even when I was finishing my PhD, I was like, well, where's the information about these two neurons and their pathways in the brain in this the basal ganglia model it just wasn't really well discussed and even when I started to talk about studying these neurons when I was a postdoc people were like I don't understand the basal ganglia and these neurons are involved in like Parkinson's and Huntington's why are you studying them in diction um hmm. so it's so different back then but but basically what we found is when you activate a d1 neuron in a cocaine condition place preference you get this um, enhanced place preference, we activate a D2 neuron, you can blunt that place preference. We kind of saw this, these opposing roles. I will say that it's that's a simplified role of these neurons. We know it's way more complex than that. It could depend on, with all the tool development and really um, discrete targeting of different nucleus accumbens regions, we know it's way more complex. And the D1 neurons can actually um, have a, you know, play a role in aversive behavior. The D2 neurons can play a role in motivation when you activate them. But but at least with cocaine on board and just really taking a sledgehammer, we're able to see these kind of opposing responses which, which fit with this, this traditional model. And we saw similar things when we knocked out the track B receptor BDNF. So those are kind of the big findings. And I think the first to show, when the, I think the first to do optogenetics and addiction, but also the first to kind of show these roles, these turn-ons, and at least a drug-rewarded, drug-seeking paradigm. Yeah, so you'd kind of use, you know, some of the, um, looking at the kind of the cell populations from your PhD, but then looking at them in a different brain region um, and identified them really in this kind of novel um, context or behavior as no yeah. one had really done this before. And really like, I think, you know, your work has set off a whole 
subfield within the addiction of looking at these D1 and D2 subpopulations. Um, yeah, it's really cool. Obviously, I'm yeah. very interested in it. Hasn't been good. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I think most people would say that those are some of the major findings. That the now there's a lot of yeah. characterizing these cell types, mm-hmm. um, and that like you know, it's such, it's so funny to think that, I guess, you know, there was a world where these cell types weren't considered important and mm-hmm. were, were overlooked in the nucleus yeah. accumbens. From that, I'm curious as to how, I have like a few questions, but definitely like how then you kind of thought based off of what you had done in your postdoc, how you would kind of then form your own research um, uh-huh. uh, work and establish your own lab from that. And I guess the other thing I, I have to mention is that I keep hearing from both from your PhD work and from your postdoc work, how you have and how you do this now, which is it's like this through line of how um, you have these like form of these collaborations and really like um, nicely kind of uh, blend all these expertises with these different mm-hmm. labs to do this really kind yeah. of groundbreaking work. It's uh, it's cool to kind of see how um, maybe you were trained with it and how you can yeah. kind of continue that kind of practice of science yeah. now, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Like, I think I've been really fortunate to to be in like really collaborative environments when I was a graduate student. Um, I mean, William and I didn't know anything about gene expression and microarrays, and we were able to collaborate with Dan Geshwin at UCLA and his team. Um, and I also like continue to to you know work with the lab I I did my undergrad and my tech by um, when I was a research tech. Um, they actually helped me when I was just dissociating neurons because I was using this old school like um cut the cut the brains on a vibratome and ACSF and then dissociate. So I was they were they allowed me to use, you know, their their setup for that. Um, and then, you know, when I went to the Nestor lab, it's just a really collaborative place um outside the lab, but it within the lab too, because we're we were a really big group. So um it was really about team science within the lab. Um, we we just worked well together as a group and people would collaborate on different people's projects. If you look at the, the publications, there's like a bazillion A's <laughs> because people were actually just helping each other out a lot um, during my time in the lab. Um, and then joining, since I joined the University of Maryland, it's also just a, a stellar collaborative group. So I think I've just been really fortunate to be in these collaborative environments um, where, where there's just... Um, a lot of emphasis on collaboration and people are just really open to collaboration. And so, you know, you said you were when um, now you're at University of Maryland, I guess, how did you kind of make that decision to establish your lab there and then like set what you wanted to? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, so, um, yeah, so I knew that I wanted to continue. Um, and I'll step back when I, I didn't know if that I was going to, if I wanted to stay in this long run. Um, I didn't know if I was going to be a scientist and have my own lab when I was ending graduate school, but I knew I was still excited about the science. So I went on to do a postdoc and it wasn't until like the postdoc was like, okay, I think I can do this. But I think like most people, imposter syndrome, it's real. And I know a lot of people have it. A lot of trainees have it and faculty still have it. Um, So I just wanted to address that just because I didn't, you know, my, my end goal wasn't, it was, I'm going to be a scientist and have my own lab because I just wasn't sure if I could do that, but it's, but it is doable. And, mm-hmm. um, 
Um, and it's still, it's also really daunting when you're first going on the job market and you're thinking about starting a lab. Um, but it's just, you get, you get more comfortable with it over time. But anyways, as I was thinking about going on the, you know, going out and starting my lab, going on the job market, I knew I wanted to, it was, you know, it made sense for me to continue on with these, these cells and striatum. I have a strong foundation. Um, um, continue on with addiction work, but I also picked up a lot of stress work when I was in the Nestor lab, and I was still really interested in mental health, um, depression, um, so that made sense for me to also start to learn that when I was a postdoc and then bring that to my own lab. Um, I also knew that, like, you know, like, I, I felt like I had a foundation, and I had, you know, I'd been working on these cells for so long, so so I had a right to be there working on the cells as anyone does, but I also knew it was getting crowded and I'd want to think about other areas. So I thought about the downstream regions that these, that the nucleus accumbens was connected to and even the striatum. Um, and we started, you know, one goal was to look at the ventral pallidum or even other pallidum regions, but we focused on the ventral pallidum, which is heavily connected to the nucleus accumbens, which is what you're working on now. So, <laughs> so I knew I wanted to continue to do the cell type specific analysis. Um, of these basal ganglia, more ventral basal ganglia regions in the context of addiction and stress. Um, um, but I, you know, I wasn't doing as much molecular as I wanted to in the Nestor lab. So I knew I wanted to get back into more molecular. Mm. Um, and I also wanted to study more biology. Like during the PhD, I was really just finding genes. During the postdoc, I really went to my postdoc to do more biology, but it was really just skimming the surface. Um, mm -hmm. So I really wanted to make sure my lab was starting to look at like, more at biology, um, which we've done some of that in different projects. Um, but um, but I also I'll also say I was still interested in other aspects of mental health. And when I was working on one mouse line in the Nestor lab, um, this D1 Trek B knockout, I noticed a subset of them had this stereotypy behavior. So I was like, I'm going to study that. I'm going to bring it to the lab and study it. I'll say that's not, as you know, that's a, a major focus of the lab. It's a little side project. And as you know, we have some other mice that have stereotypy <laughs> now. But the bulk of the lab is really studying, you know, studying basal ganglia, cell subtypes, molecular and cellular mechanisms in the context of disruptive motivation and addiction and stress. Um, and that's, you know, again, that kind of goes back to like my basic interests of molecular of behavior, of disrupted behavior. Cool. So you mentioned kind of, you know, getting more of it, also then integrating the biology. I know that there is work related to other kinds of mechanisms outside of also gene expression or kind of related to yeah. gene expression. Would you mind kind of sharing a little yeah. bit about some of the, this kind of work? Yeah. 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 So one thing um, I never thought when I started my lab is I never imagined I'd be studying mitochondria. So that's one direction <laughs> the lab is, has taken. Um, in fact, I didn't, if there was an organelle in the cell that I didn't like, it was probably mitochondria because right <laughs> in our biochemistry classes, you have to learn all these pathways, you know, cell respiration. So mitochondria seemed awful to me. Um, <laughs> but we just kind of happened, upon, we didn't really have, we sort of happened upon it. We, you know, as I was starting my lab, writing my initial grants, in stress and and cocaine action and um, 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 cocaine related studies, um, um, there was 
an RSA um, through NIDA say about metabolism and it had mitochondria in there. And we we had established some, you know, we started doing this ribotag um, um, technique where you can isolate translating or RNA that are um, found on the ribosome. So likely RNA they're undergoing translation. Um, and we had a lot of tissue from animals that are just exposed to cocaine. I was like, well, let's just look at some of these genes. And we started to see some of these genes changing in our populations of cells after cocaine exposure. Um, so we just kind of went down that path. The more we also realized the transcription factor we were looking at, EGR3, is actually there's binding sites for it on some of these genes. So that just kind of naturally led to studying that. Um, and then we just started to probe mitochondria, looking at molecular changes related to mitochondrial division, fission in the context of cocaine exposure and intake, and started to find mechanisms there. And there's a whole, whole body of literature showing that, you know, co- mitochondrial division or fission and the molecules that regulate it are actually really important for neuronal plasticity. So we were able to link up our mitochondrial changes to neuronal plasticity that occurs with cocaine. So really study this organelle and show how it relates to just fundamental plasticity changes, cocaine exposure. And definitely it's opened up a lot of areas. There is, you know, now I have a grant on mitochondria. Multiple people in the lab are are, are starting to study and excited about studying mitochondria. Cool. So you see uh, kind of discussed a lot of different kind of lines of research that are all overarching of kind of some of your like original interests and kind of goals of looking at behavior and kind of isolating properties or roles of different cell populations. And so I think that's, it's kind of cool to see how you had like your influence and training and really have created such a big and broad like research program. I wanted to kind of like acknowledge that as I also then pivot that you've also helped create a lot of initiatives in the department too. I'm alongside of like building that big research program and like (laughs) establishing these different lines and looking into creating a great environment for the department and trainees. And so I kind of love to hear about how you kind of got involved in those kind of initiatives (laughs) Um, and whether you had kind of any experiences in your training that made you want to become involved in that um, or lead mm-hmm. how, as you are now with those things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So how did how did that all begin? So I guess, you know, I don't know that I was thought about experience in my training that led to that, but I can talk about some experiences in my training and more about that. So I was always in labs that were, you know, headed by men. Um, so, um, you know, and I realized late, I mean, they were great mentors. They were very supportive of women, but I realized later would have been valuable for me to have, you know, more women mentors in my environment. But when I think back to it, I was thinking about, you know, when you you contacted me about doing this and, you know, some questions you put out there, I was thinking about this today. I When I started as an undergrad in that first lab, I actually worked with a graduate student who's a woman. So obviously she was a, she was a big influence. But I was working, most of the people in the lab were doing electrophysiology and they were on a different floor. I was actually working in a core facility that was a histology core facility. Um, and that's where the graduates been doing you know, spend most of their time because she was doing all this um, immunos and um, imaging and histology. And all that the, there were two research staff in that environment that were also women. So I realized I actually started my scientific experience surrounded by women in this, mm-hmm. you know, we're a few floors up right away from the rest lab. And that's where I was all the time, interacting with this, <laughs> with all these women scientists. 
And I like when I think about it, it really provided me a very just like safe, secure place where I just felt comfortable from day one. Um, and whether it has to do with sex or just, you know, the, the way these individuals were, but, but that was a really, that, that was just a, a wonderful experience for me. Um, and it's not something I, you know, I really like recognized till recently. I started out science in just a really safe, secure place. And it wasn't just, you know, the graduate student that was mentoring me, it was the other research staff. And one of them I actually ended up working with for a bit when I was staff myself in between grad school and undergrad. Um, so it just, I started out in a really safe place. And I think that that's really important that we're, we're making sure trainees start out in places where they feel safe, where they feel like they can be comfortable and grow and learn about science. So that's something that that's been really important to me. And that's something, you know, I want to make sure it's happening in our you know, our department and our neuroscience community, how did I actually end up in this role? Well, I <laughs> ended up directing a graduate program, um, the program in neuroscience at University of Maryland. In our neuroscience program, we really just do this term for like three to four years. So I was I was actually a little short, I was two and a half because they um, asked me to do it um, right after, like, the, like, I think the day after I get tenure, my former chair was like, <laughs> oh, I think you would be good in this role. And I think they just you know, why didn't they ask someone more senior than me? I was actually hired right after the recession. So they hadn't mm -hmm. hired anyone in like five years until they hired me. So I think they just had a deficit of faculty <laughs> that could do this role. I was, you know, first I was like, why are you choosing me? I mean, I think there were different <laughs> things I did that put me in that spot. I had been, you know, running the journal club and I had started some new initiatives which were like the TED talk during journal clubs the students um, and postdocs can actually talk about their science um, mm -hmm. you know get be prepared to talk to science to lay audience I will say I didn't come up with that idea that was a trainee coming to me and being like I think we should, let's do this I want to do this um, and I was able to help implement it so I think Saying that, but my former chair asked me to direct the graduate program, and I was—I actually shadowed the the former director Jessica Mong, who's now actually the director of the bigger graduate program. Um, I, I shadowed her for a bit, and I also learned from her from like because like when you run a graduate program, you know most of the time things are going well, but you have a lot of hurdles to you know unexpected hurdles. So it's really good to see the way that she managed these different situations. Um, hmm. But anyways, I was ending my term as graduate program director. And one thing we I knew we needed to do and we hadn't done yet was start a diversity committee. And I, um, you know, I was ending my term and the next um, graduate program director, Brian Mather, was about to come on. And then that, you know, COVID was happening. <laughs> it was 2020. Mm -hmm. COVID's happening. And then the murder of George Floyd. So Brian and I, you know, we were, I think, we weren't quite transitioned over. I was still, you know, directing the program and he was just about to start, but we're like, okay, we really need to address this to, to our community. We need to do something and say something. Um, so we started addressing it and then we really just started thinking about like, what do we, what can we do to just make this a better community, a more mm -hmm. diverse, equitable, inclusive, belonging community. And I told him we need to start this diversity committee. And then I went, you know, he's he took it over for Brian in the middle of COVID, he's taking over a graduate program. And then I went <laughs> off. But then like a month or so later, he's like, oh, Mary Kay, I think you would be best to be the chair of this committee because you know what the program needs. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, okay, this is really important. I'll do this. So we started this committee that kind of started out as a graduate program, diverse committee, but it was really about just all of our neuroscience community. And we like, where do we start? Where do we begin? I think a lot of people were in that that space right yeah. then, like starting these grassroots you know, committees or organizations to just try to make change. So, so we've done things on, on multiple levels, whether it's like improving recruitment, making sure we're discussing bias and racism Mm -hmm. and neuroscience to our graduate students, making sure there's more trainings in places. Um, And now it's actually, and also educating the community through this, it started out as a memo, now it's a newsletter, mm-hmm. um, and then we have beautiful artwork with with a student in the lab, Daniela, who yeah. we work with, who now has taken over that newsletter, um, so it's grown, and now we're actually the UM Mind, University of Maryland, um, it's our um, our neuroscience institute, we're now the, we're the UM Mind Ideas Committee, so inclusivity, diversity, equity, and anti-racism in science, um, and we have a lot of other initiatives going on, but at the same time, I also wanted to make sure I was addressing it with my lab, and mm-hmm. I actually wasn't the first to do this. My colleague, Dennis Sparta, who, who was um, in my department, he's now at University of Illinois, Chicago, but he's the one who first was like, I'm going to have a discussion with my lab members, and actually had a lot of insightful comments from them and shared them with me and others and I was like okay I need to start discussing with this with my lab too Mm -hmm. and that just kind of naturally progressed into just so like an initial discussion and then like okay let's let's do this let's do this every Mm -hmm. couple months and making sure that we're discussing these issues in the lab and we're learning about about these issues and I think it's you know, it's grown the, the 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 ideas committee that's growing, but there's also other initiatives across campus. An initiative that you're a part of this pr- um, promoting belonging in neuroscience. So there's just a lot of things going on. It's cool to kind of hear, you know, how you got involved in these different initiatives. Oh, yeah. And I think yeah. it sounds like a lot of it is, you know, you see a need or you are asked to fulfill something based off of yeah. you having experience yeah. um, in doing something else that was also yeah. needed. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, you like uh, are able to kind of generate this um, kind of whole vision for how things are really growing. And it seems like, you know, um, you're able to take the, a seed of an idea and really like, you know, grow a whole forest essentially. Yeah. And you do that with yeah. the research and also <laughs> with these initiatives. So it's kind of see, um, you know, I think I joined, uh, especially like with uh, those initiatives at, um, as they had already started, but it's kind of cool to see how they continue to grow through kind of, you know, your influence and support of other people yeah. in the department to doing these kind of things. So it's really cool. And, you know, it's um, as obviously I've always had an awareness of your research career, but it's yeah. cool to hear how kind of that you've been influenced or how you've always kind of been within those positions to also like blossom your research career, yeah. but you do it in other ways too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I will like, I mean, I mean, yeah, I was involved with the graduate school training, but I, I will say I wasn't doing enough in the diversity, the, the inclusivity belonging realm until like really a lot of us just woke up in 2020 and realized mm-hmm. we need to do more. Um, And it just, you know, it's, that's just, yeah, it's, there was a need and I was like, yeah. well, I thought I was going to and finish the graduate program and like, yeah. you know, have some time off. But I realized like this is this is really important. And it's yeah. and I'm, I'm glad that we're able to do I feel there's still so much to do, but I feel like we've been able to do some things that have impacted individuals. And um, I'm glad that I, you know, started this, but 
other people will be taking on. I'll transfer yeah, to yeah. other individuals. <laughs> and right now I'm just co-chairing, but but I'm glad that we're, we've, we're able to turn it and also turn it into something that's part of this big neuroscience institute. So we have a bigger platform yeah. and hopefully get just get more people engaged. Yeah, that's great. As we're coming to an end of the interview, one thing we always like to ask is, you know, what's something that you like to do as kind of a hobby or just enjoy outside yeah. <laughs> of uh, research um, yeah. and neuroscience? Yeah, I mean, you know, I have two dogs, so I love just hanging out with my dogs. Um, I also love to travel, which I get to do a lot for for work. So um, I try to make sure that I'm at least taking a few extra days when I'm traveling for work to enjoy it. But yeah, I'm actually on the other flip side, I'm I'm trying to do less traveling so I can do hobbies that I mm-hmm. haven't always had a chance to do. I remember when I started my postdoc, I was actually doing... Um, um, like pottery, the the urn, you know, the um, wheel with someone else who was in my department. And I've been meaning to get back to that. And it's been, I mean, that was 2007, 2008. So, <laughs> so looking forward to thinking about, you know, maybe like cutting down and traveling and doing things like that. But but usually I'm just, you know, when I am home and not traveling, I'm, I'm hanging out with my pups and just, yeah. you know, relaxing. <laughs> That's nice. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. And it's been great to hear your science training. Yeah, thank you so much. No, it's awesome to be interviewed by a trainee in the lab, um, a successful woman trainee in the lab. So thanks. Thanks for giving me this opportunity. Mm -hmm.